Young women have been growing up with an indoctrination of what womanhood is and what it should be. They've been taught everything that is in direct opposition to the Word of God. Young women who want to be different from the world are rare, but they are real. On this Rare But Real podcast, Audrey Brogy will often be joined by her daughter, Grace Anna, and her daughters-in-law, Maureen, Kesset, and Marilyn, who desire to be discerning in a day when everything seems to go against God's design. Join them in the journey of becoming rare but real. It takes courage and conviction. And now, Audrey Brogy. Pray this prayer. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you how you have been so kind to use this chapter of scripture in such a profound way in my own life. I know personally that I will never be the same, and I thank you for that. Father, I pray for every woman who's in this room, every teenage girl, every young girl who's listening, who may listen should you tarry many years from now. I thank you that your word never changes, that it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I thank you for your grace, and I thank you that you um, give strength to the weary, and you help us in all things. And Father, I give this next hour to you that you would bless it in a way that only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, last time we talked about some things I want to briefly review. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, and that means in wrongdoing. There's no satisfaction in anyone's sin, no matter who the sinner is. There's no bragging about sin. We talked about how love covers sin. It protects the one sinning. Yes, it rebukes, it warns, and it confronts but it also protects and covers. Love rejoices with the truth. 
You know, and this is why we talked about this last time. This is why believers are so grieved and so saddened and so heartbroken over the gross sin of our day. We don't celebrate. We don't embrace what God clearly says in his word is sin. We don't accept it as the right thing. We don't celebrate it. We talked about how what the world says today, so many things they're telling us, they're just lies. They're just so against the truth of God. And it's everywhere because we are living in an upside down world where the wrong is said to be right and where the right is said to be wrong. We talked about how truth and love go hand in hand. And we also talked about how how obedience to the truth, our obedience to the truth proves that we love Christ it proves that we loved him we love him and not the world and then we talked about how love bears all things that there's no limits to love it bears a load and it deflects the wrongs that have been done to us rather than focusing on them love believes all things we talked about that it trusts yet it's not a gullible love It's discerning and wise, but it is eager to believe the best. It wants to believe the best. It wants to believe the best, not the worst about someone. And then we ended in the middle of love hopes all things. In fact, we ended, that's the middle of verse 7. Love hopes all things. It always hopes. Love has a hopeful heart. I told you how in Proverbs 31, when God is describing the excellent woman, he says this, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. The NIV says she can laugh at the days to come. The King James says, and she shall rejoice in the time to come. This woman knows the reality of life. She knows that she's getting older. She knows that her days on earth are limited, yet she smiles because she is prepared. She has prepared her family. She knows her God. She knows her end. She knows with every single day she is closer to seeing her Savior face to face. And the only way she wouldn't be smiling or hoping all things is if her focus is on herself and all the trinkets that this world offers. But God's woman is hopeful She's smiling even when she's sad. She's smiling even in perilous times. She's smiling even when it seems all hope is lost. And it's not an optimism here. It's a realism. But it's a realism that remains hopeful even in the mess-ups of life. It's the love that even when someone flounders and seems to have lost their way, They know by your love for them that you have not given up on them. You haven't written them off. And we talked about this just a little bit in terms of our children, in terms of your children. You recognize faults in your child, but you don't see them as failures. You don't see their failures as this has to be that way their whole lives. And I reminded you that as a mom, you hang on, you hope, you pray, you anticipate, and you don't ever, 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 ever give up on your children. Not ever. And this is like God. He doesn't give up on us. He's always waiting for the penitent child to receive. And I even read the words to that hymn, Rescue the Perishing, because that hymn really does reflect the heart of our Lord. As 2 Peter 3, 9 states, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And this kind of love, hoping all things, doesn't keep harping on the past. It looks forward to what will be and what can be. And this is exactly what our Lord did did with Peter. 
think about this for just a moment. Peter denied his Lord three times. The cock crowed and Jesus looked at him. Listen to the words from Luke chapter 22. But Peter said when he was questioned about, you're you're one of them. You belong to him, right? Talking about Jesus. And Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And then the Lord turned. I mean, think about what's going on here. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. He looked at Peter right when he was denying him the third time. And remember, Jesus had told him this was going to happen. And he's like, no. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times And what was Peter's response when Jesus looked at him? The scripture tells us that he went out and wept bitterly. But here's the thing. Jesus did not give up on Peter. After the resurrection, in John chapter 21, the scripture tells us this. After these things, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, who was called Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. I mean, I love how this narrative reads. It's just like telling a story. And two of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we are also coming with you. Remember, Peter's a leader. He just says what he's going to do, and they're going to go with him. They went out and got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish to eat, do you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find the fish. So they cast it and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great quantity of fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved, this this is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord... What does he do? He puts on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in a little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 200 cubits away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on land, they saw this charcoal fire that was already made and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. So Simon Peter went up and hauled the net to the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. I mean, just think about it. He even tells us how many fish, 153. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to inquire of him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. And verse 14 says, this was now the third time, third time that Jesus revealed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. 
And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now here's the thing. Jesus is questioning Peter about Peter's love for him. And if Peter really loved Jesus, then Jesus, what Jesus tells him is, he doesn't, he doesn't say, well, show me personally. He says, shepherd my sheep, care for my sheep, tend to my sheep, tend to other believers, for those who belong to Christ. It's the emphasis here. Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, shepherd my sheep. Now think about this in terms of all that we've been learning in 1 Corinthians 13. If we truly love our master, we will love his people. No matter how messy they are, no matter how they have wronged us, no matter how they disappoint us, no matter what we think of them, we will love them and we will tend to them and we will shepherd them. I mean, here's, here's Peter, the one who floundered so much in denying his Lord, kind of losing his way for a little bit of time, but he didn't stay there and Jesus did not give up on him. And that makes me think again about the prodigal son's father as we focus on how love helps us hope all things. Remember, the father knew his son was wayward. I know I've talked about this, but I, he knew his son was wayward. He knew his son has, had rejected everything. He rejected his upbringing. He rejected his heritage. And he even rejected his own father and his family. The son had left. He had taken his inheritance. And of course, the passage tells us that he wasted it and squandered it. He brought shame to himself and shame to his family. Yet the father hoped all things. And how do I know that? Luke 15 tells us this in verse 20. So he set out, speaking about the son here. So he set out, and this is after he came to his senses, after he'd been wallowing with the pigs and thinking about his father, it says, he came to his father, but when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, why would he see his son when he was so far away? Because he hoped he would. He never stopped hoping. Love hopes all things. And notice the scripture tells us that the father felt compassion, not scorn, not I told you so, not oh, okay, so you wasted it all, you lost it all, you've been wallowing, now you're coming back to me? Now you're doing this? Now you're crawling back? Well, let me see what, how I can make you pay and pay back everything that you've done. He doesn't do that. And Jesus didn't do that with Peter. He showed compassion so much so that he ran, embraced, kissed. This is the kind of love that hopes all things. This father was obviously looking every single day, never giving up, hoping, praying, looking. And that is a mark of a believer. Hope, not hopelessness. Unbelievers, think about it. They have no hope. This is all they have in this life. This is everything. This is the best they're ever going to have. They cannot smile at the future the way godly people can. Ephesians 2.12 reminds us that when God says, remember that you were at the time separate from Christ, excluded, and I circled all these word, words, 
separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I mean, how powerful is that? I mean, all of Scripture is this way. It's just so powerful. I mean, but we fill our minds with everything else under the sun. And so we don't experience this in our day-to-day walk with Christ because we focus on what the world tells us rather than what God tells us. Without Christ, people are hopeless, but not believers. Think of the words in 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. He's talking about those who have died, people that you love, so that you will not grieve as indeed the rest of men do, those who have no hope. I mean, grief is real and it's awful and it's awful for believers and unbelievers. It just hurts so much, but there is a difference Believers have hope because of Christ. Even when death strikes, we have hope. Is In this life, is there anyone that you've given up on? Hope for them. Pray for them. Be like the prodigal's father who never gave up. And you might not even see redemption in this life. And maybe it won't come. Only God knows. But don't give up. Keep hoping. Keep praying. Keep believing. And then the next part in 1 Corinthians 13 is love endures all things. It perseveres. Again, love has no limits. Love has this like strong thing about it. I mean, it has, it's like a fortress. It has this fortitude about it. It's like a pushing through. This, again, this not giving up, it's a choice that we make. Love makes up its mind to love forever, no matter what. No end to it. Not like three strikes, you're out. Not you, not you cross me again. You disappoint me one more time and I'm, I'm done with you. No, there's no end to it. The scripture tells us that Jesus loved his disciples to the end. He even loved Judas Iscariot to the end. John 13, verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There's no end to God's kind of love because it perseveres even when the one loved is so difficult to love. And this is a t- determination to love. It's not based on feelings. It's a making up your mind. It's a choice. Think of your marriage vows, for better or worse. Sometimes it's worse for a whole myriad of reasons. But we love in the better, we love in the best, we love in the worst, and we love in the worst. God loves us in our worst, even once we come to know the Lord. But think about it, that's where he found us, at our worst. Enemies, hostile, running fast away from him. That's who he is. And then love never fails. That's verse 8. It stands when everything else fails. And here we see more emphasis. Love's permanent. It's complete. It's supreme. It's everything. The real evidence of spirituality and becoming spiritually mature is found here. Remember all these definitions of love? 
Remember how, you know, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and all these definitions, all that God's taken so much care to write and to tell us. Remember, it's found in the context of these Corinthian believers who were anything but this. They were exalting spiritual gifts. I mean, they had a whole host of problems, which we talked about last time. I mean, they were spiritually minded. You know, they were spiritually minded, and in, in, in a lot of ways it was a thriving church, but they were big spiritual babies, and they were bragging, and they were just, had so many issues. But Paul here wants them to know that the spiritual gifts that he, God gives, how God gifts his church, and every one of you, if you belong to the Lord, you have at least one spiritual gift, maybe more. And God gives them to believers to be used now in the body of Christ. We don't use them in heaven We use them now, and they're used now as we serve each other. We have the opportunity to share the gospel now. We have the opportunity to teach the scriptures now. We have the opportunity to encourage each other now. I mean, that's what he's telling us. We're living on this earth, and he's saying the spiritual gifts will pass, but love lasts forever because one day spiritual gifts will not be needed. Back in the first chapter of Corinthians, Paul wrote this. You're not lacking. This is what he's telling the the believers there. You're not lacking in any gift. He says, as you eagerly await the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember again, they were a spiritually minded church, as we are in this church. And they had all the gifts of the Spirit. God equips his body with the gifts of the Spirit. That doesn't mean everyone's using them because a lot of Christians are just lazy and they don't want God. I mean, they just want to be lazy. And they're not using their gifts in the body. But this is where we're supposed to be using them. But he's telling them, you have the gifts of the Spirit. And you are looking forward to Christ's return. But then Paul also says in verse 10, a little later in the same chapter, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there there be no divisions among you. He's always having to tell them that because they're fighting about everything. That you be made complete in the same mind. That's what he wants for them. And in the same judgment, he's telling them, them these things because they're so prideful in their giftedness. They had this preoccupation. And of course, we know, if you know the Corinthians, they especially had a preoccupation with tongue speaking. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8, Paul says this, you're already filled, you've already become rich, you've become kings without us, and indeed I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. I mean, here he's dealing with their pride. And some of us, as women, as we understand more and more doctrine and what God wants, we're not exempt from spiritual pride. We can become prideful and look down on other people. But Paul wants them to know that they can't claim a perfection in this life. They can't. They can't claim a maturity that that will only happen in heaven. That's what he's going to continue on in this 1 Corinthians 13 to teach us. Because that's what he says in verse 8. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. I mean, he wants them to know that spiritual gifts are not proving anything. Because all of these gifts are going to be done away with. That's what he says. They will pass away. They'll disappear. They are given again for us to use in the body of Christ now. But even in our using them now, they're not perfect. 
And then verse 9, he says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Now think about it. We already know that the sign gifts have passed away. But even healing, we pray for people's healing all the time, don't we? We pray for that. But we still die. We pray, and even if we're healed in this life, in the way that we're praying for, it's temporary. Even if the cancer that someone has is in remission, it's temporary. Whatever disease they're facing, it's temporary because we all die. Death is coming to all of us. But God's telling us when the perfect comes, that's when healing is complete. No tears, no sighing, no pain, no treatments, no tests, no MRIs, no CAT scans. Healing is complete when the perfect comes. No matter what physical afflictions you had in this life, they're all gone. You have a glorified body. If you lost all your fingers, you're going to have them. And this is why faith healers are awful. (laughs) They're deceptive. They're charlatans. They're propagating a lie. Because the perfect is not now. It's not in this life. It is coming. But it's coming in heaven And this is also why we can't say that all sickness is a sign of sin in a person's life. Remember, that's what Job's friends were telling him. I mean, sometimes there is sickness that's a result of that. We all know that. But y'all, we live in a fallen world. And when sin happened way back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in sin, we all did it with them. Sin entered the world. And with that sin is pain and toil and heartache. We get sick physically, emotionally, in every way. It's not perfect. But the perfect will come. Verse 10. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Now, God, again, through Paul, is telling the Corinthians Corinthians and us that we are to grow up. I mean, it's like saying, grow up. We are to become spiritually mature, not in our own self-righteousness and thinking that we're spiritually mature because there's a difference. And because he's telling them, you're a bunch of spiritual babies and you're so prideful. He's saying, that is a sign that you're a baby. He says, I want you to become truly spiritually mature. It's not about the gifts. It's not about the pride of gifts. This growing up is also emphasized in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Isn't that what women do today? I mean, women are so not grounded in the truth of God's word, and they just listen to whatever. Whatever sounds okay, or if this person just seems like they just love everybody, They just follow, and they don't weigh it against the truth of Scripture. That's why sometimes I even hear God's women, people who I know are believers, saying phrases of the world like, well, I'm not going to tell you my truth. It's like, y'all, let's grow up. 
We're not to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of people, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, because that's what the devil does. He uses people to trick believers. He's crafty. That's, the Bible tells us that's what he is. He's like a roaring lion, but he also disguises himself as an angel of light. He uses everything in his bag of tricks to mess up believers. Then earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul said this, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men. Remember, this is what he's telling these believers all through the Corinthians. You know, he's always reminding them, you're just such babies. He says, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. And of course, this includes women. As to infants in Christ, babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you, were sti- for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, he, and what he's saying about that, you should be now, but you're not. Even now, you're not yet able, for you're still fleshly. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? I mean, hear how he's rebuking them. He's exhorting them. I mean, he's very tough on these believers. And you hear, see here, he's saying, there's jealousy and strife among you. To see why when, he, when he's explaining what love is, love's not jealous. It's not easily provoked. It's not irritable. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffer because if you are all these things, if you haven't grown up in Christ and this is, describes you, then there's strife in the body. Everybody's fighting against everybody because we're all walking like mere men, even though we belong to Christ. And then in chapter 14 of this book, verse 20, brothers, stop thinking like children in regard to evil. And and think about this, this statement. He's like, in regard to evil, I want you to be babies. I want you to be babies in terms of what is evil. But he said, in your thinking, be mature. And in this admonition, it's in the next chapter when Paul is expounding how foolish they are to pride themselves in tongue speaking. Paul wants them to grow up, to stop acting like babies. You know, when you're raising your children, isn't the baby just so cute when he does silly things? You know, when he's a little toddler or she's a little toddler and she's walking around and she's doing all kinds of silly things. But then your 10-year-old is not cute doing the same thing. I mean, you can put anything in there that's adorable. But then your 10-year-old does it, and you're like, what is wrong with you? I mean, a 35-year-old is not cute acting like a 20-year-old. My 20-year-old is like, well, they're young. They'll grow, you know, hopefully, (laughs) mature, or whatever the age is. And then a 35-year-old, a 36-year-old, they're still acting that way? No. A 60-year-old is not cute acting like a 40-year-old. I mean, we should be growing and maturing. We should be uh, putting away childish things. Some things we do and say as baby Christians, even if you come to Christ later in life, they're understandable, even cute. I mean, cute. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) But they are not cute When we've been Christians a longer time, we should be growing up. Are you still as immature as an adult now as you were when you were 12? I mean, there are a lot of adults who are. 
I mean, there's a lot of 12-year-olds who seem way more mature than an adult, but they're still only 12. I used to tell my kids, that, I trust you. You're very mature. You're, the, you're one of the most mature 15-year-olds I know, but you're only 15. Just reminding them of that. And so if you're still as immature as you were when you were 12, that is tragic. Are you still at, now let's put this, talk about just spiritually speaking, are you still as spiritually immature today as you were when, as you were, when you were first a believer? Do the same things provoke you today that provoked you 10 years ago? Do you still react the same? Are you still a mean girl like maybe you were in high school? Do you still gossip and look each other up and down and all the stuff that maybe, maybe you didn't do those things? I don't know. But think, whatever it was, how immature you were in high school, are you still that way today? Whether you're 35, 40, 50, 55, 60, 65, 70, 75, 80, are you still like that? Do you still gossip about people the same way? Do you still hold grudges against people? Do you still hold things against wrongs that were done to you in high school? I'm talking about, let's hold on to it. Can't wait to tell that again. See, the Corinthians were prideful in their gifting and what they thought they knew, but they were big spiritual babies. So Paul had to tell them that. Y'all are acting like babies. Grow up. Verse 12 says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. We don't know it all. We fail. We stumble. We disappoint. We don't understand it all. It's not perfect now. We're, we are not perfect now, but we're to grow up. And even on our best day, we're, it's still not perfect. And then he says, so he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. You and I are fully known by God, fully known. He knows everything and he loves you. He knows everything and he's willing to save you and redeem you and bring you into the kingdom of light. Psalm 139 that I'm always saying, memorize, 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 teach it to your girls, teach it, teach it, teach it. You never have to feel lonely. I mean, you will. But you don't have to because even when no one is around and no one understands and no one feels your pain, no one gets it, God is there. He's all around you. He's with you. When you know him, he lives inside of you. And James tells us to draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Sometimes we don't feel his presence because we're just living our own way and we have unconfessed sin in our lives and we can't enjoy the sweet fellowship with him and, and what he wants to give us because we are so stubborn and headstrong and we're acting fleshly and like babies. God knows you fully. You belong to him. And that in this verse, though, it says, even if we belong to him, even as we are growing up in him, we only know in part. Now, he knows us fully, but we don't know him fully yet. But he says, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. I mean, think about the people that you've lost in this life. 
those you love with all of your heart, those who are already in the presence of the Lord, those you still grieve because they are not with you now in this life. If they died in Christ, not only were they fully known by God in this life, but now in heaven, think about it, they know God fully, whether they died as a child whether they died as a teenager, whether they died as a young adult, whether they died as an old person, if they know Christ, they know God fully. We who are alive and still here, and God still wants us to use our spiritual gifts. He wants us to encourage the body. He wants us all the day while it's still called today. The only reason we're still here is because God wants to use us in this life. He's not finished in this life. But in this life, we only know God in part. I mean, we know him. But he says, then I will know fully, face to face. That's when the perfect comes. That's what he says. But then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. I mean, think about it. All your questions answered. All your uncertainties certain. I mean, y'all, it's coming. We don't understand it all now. We see it in mirror dimly. We have so many questions. We have so much pain. But we can still smile at the future because we know it's coming. You know, earlier in Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, Paul wrote this, Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything... He has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Fully known. There it is. He's known by God. He knows my name. He knows your name. He knows everything about me. That's what one, Psalm 139 teaches along with all of Scripture. And yet, he loves me still. And see, just like the Corinthians, we can lose sight of these things. We just get so caught up in this world. And, and we don't get caught up in the right way when I say, because we should care about this world, rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin in the grave, weep over the erring, erring one, lift up the fallen, tell them of Jesus, the mighty, to save. All these people that are headed straight to hell because they're, you, you know their minds are upside down. And even if they hate you for telling them the truth, you're trying to, to tell them of Jesus, the mighty, to save. We get so caught up, too, as believers in giftedness and food and knowledge and masks and social distancing and criticizing each other because we have different opinions on everything. We just become clanging cymbals, noisy gongs, just a bunch of nothing. Verse 13, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest love, that's what I called this series. And I've talked all the way through these messages. It's a supernatural love. It's not something we just have on our own. That's why it's like, yet not I, but the Christ in me. It's, I'm not capable of this on my own. And I talk, we've talked about how it's not sentimentality. It's not mushy. Paul wrote these words to the Colossian believers. 
He said this in Colossians 1, we always thank God. Now listen, just listen to this. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard about your faith in Christ Jesus. And there's the word faith. We've heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and your love. There's love for all the saints, the faith and love proceeding from the hope stored up for you in heaven. I mean, there it is again, what we're learning in 1 Corinthians 13. Of which you have already heard in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. The gospel that has come to you. I mean, think about that for just a moment. However God saved you, just think about the moment you understood the gospel when it clicked. When it's like the blinders fell off and you understood The gospel came to you. He says all over the world this gospel is bearing fruit. All over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood the grace of God. (laughs) All over this world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Don't ever forget that. It doesn't matter what the world's telling us and what it's preaching to us and all the lies it's giving to us and wanting you to accept everything. You just remember God is working. And he's working all over this world and he's still saving people. He's opening their eyes to the truth. They, and people are truly understanding the grace of God. You learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also informed us of your love in the Spirit. You hear how he's talking about his brother in Christ? They're working together. He's a servant. He's talking about what's going on in the body of Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3 says this, We always thank God for all of you, remembering you in our prayers and continually recalling before our God and Father your work of faith, there's the word, your labor of love, there it is, and your enduring hope, there it is, in our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, just think about it. A true believer's life is characterized by a supernatural faith, supernatural hope, it hopes all things, and a supernatural love, faith in Jesus alone, not of works lest anyone should boast, love, not a a warm, fuzzy feeling, but a choice something you demonstrate, something that you make up your mind to do because it's right. Love for a fellow believers no matter what you think of them. Because here's the thing, when God's love in, in, in invades your life, your heart is filled with compassion and you will love God's people even when they annoy you. And you won't be perfect in that love, not in this life. You won't. <laughs> Your love will have flaws, but you will love people no matter if they're rich, poor, skinny, ugly, pretty, fat, whatever you think of them, talented, not so talented, handicapped, rude, well-mannered. None of that really matters when you love the Lord in terms of your loving them. Your love for your fellow believer flows out of your love for the Lord. 
And here's the thing. If your love for people is shallow, if your love for your fellow believer is shallow, then you know what that says? That your love for God is shallow. And we say we love God. But then, boy, I don't know about those people. Hope, hope for heaven, assurance of heaven. Aren't you glad that we have a blessed hope? As Titus 2 tells us, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to everyone. It instructs us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. I mean, you see, it's an instructive thing. Our salvation should instruct us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Remember, we don't rejoice in unrighteousness. We rejoice with the truth. We aren't happy about sin that's pervading our culture in, in ways of, it's always been in, uh, pervading our culture, but now it's celebrated. We're to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And what does God, how does God say? He never tells us a negative without giving us a positive. So then he gives us the alternative. Live sensible, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's where we are until God takes us home. This is our present age. And then he says, here's what we're to be doing while we're living in this present age. As we await the blessed hope and glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Are you zealous for good deeds? Are you excited about that? I mean, God saved us, he says here, to redeem us from lawlessness. Redeem us from lawlessness, but so many of us still enjoy lawlessness. And to purify for himself, that's how much he loves you. A people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. If you're saved, you should be looking for the blessed hope can't wait for his appearing and because he hasn't returned yet that's because there's still people who need to be saved you know I titled the study again the greatest love the last verse in this chapter says this but now faith hope love abide these three but the greatest of these is love why is love the greatest I mean think about it I'm no Bible scholar, but God is love. I mean, he's love. He is love and he loves. It's like that's who he is. I mean, God doesn't have faith the way he calls us to have faith. He's our source of faith. And God is our source of hope. It's because of him we're not hopeless. God is love, and he loves, and when God works in your life, his love, now let me qualify that again, because it's his love, his definition of love. Remember, it's not just this flippantly, this love that the world talks about, you know, love is love, and just whatever, you know, you never confront, you never rebuke, you never warn. No, God's love does those things, and his love pervades your life. And everything changes. You care about people that you didn't care about before. You want to rescue the perishing. 
Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6 says this, Those who sow in tears shall harvest with joyful shouting. One who goes here and there weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with shouts, a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. You know, there's a hymn called Bringing in the Sheaves. When I was a kid, I didn't know what that meant. And of course, sheaves are bundles of wheat. People used to gather wheat by tying them into these bundles called sheaves. So the term bringing in the sheaves means gathering the harvest. And of course, it's a wonderful metaphor for the, God's harvest of people. Matthew Henry says this in his commentary, The beginnings of mercies encourage us to pray for the completion of them. And while we are in this world, there will be matter for prayer, even when we are most furnished with matter of pray, for praise. Suffering saints are often in tears. They share the calamities of human life and commonly have a greater share than others. But they sow in tears. They do the duty of an afflicted state. Weeping, though, must not hinder sowing. We must not get good, good from the times of affliction. We must, excuse me, we must get good from the times of affliction. And they that sow in the tears of godly sorrow to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting, and that will be a joyful harvest indeed. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be forever comforted. When we mourn for our sins or suffer for Christ's sake, we are sowing in tears to reap in joy. And remember that God is not mocked. For, for whatever a man soweth, that he shall reap. That's Galatians 6, 7, and 9. Hear, O disciple of Jesus, behold an emblem of thy present labor and future reward. The day is coming when thou shalt reap in joy. Plentiful shall be thy harvest, and great shall be the, thy joy in the Lord. Sowing in the morning, sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontide and the dewy eve, waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, sowing in the sunshine, sowing in the shadows, fearing neither clouds nor winter's chilling breeze. By and by the harvest and the labor ended, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, going forth with weeping, sowing for the master. Though the loss sustained, our spirit often grieves. When our weeping's over, and y'all, it will be over, he will bid us welcome. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Are you part of bringing in the sheaves? Maybe you didn't know what it was. I remember growing up singing that song with my cousin and my siblings, and we're like, what's a sheave? But that's who God is. That's his heart. And when you know him, it becomes your heart. The greatest thing is not the gifts or the knowledge, or all these things, all these mysteries, because we know all those things were nothing if we do not love. The greatest thing is not those things, but it's the love, and it's God's love, not the world's love. 
And the display of God's love is so different from the world's understanding. That's why they don't understand us. We can speak as the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13 told us, but if God's not working, we're just noisy people. We're just gongs. We're just taking our hands and scratching a chalkboard. The greatest of these is love because God is the greatest love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Now, if God has saved you, where is your heart today? Do you love people? Do you want to snatch them in pity from the sin in the grave? Do you want to tell them of Jesus the mighty to save? Or are you the type of young girl or teenager or woman who's just staying a baby and who's not growing up in your faith, who's just so captured by the trinkets of this world that you don't, you're not thinking about the seriousness and the gravity of this life? And there's so much joy to be found in this life. There is. I mean, God put us here and he saved us. And there's so much fun and laughter. And that's why a godly woman can smile at the future and she can laugh about things that are truly funny and she has the best time. But she understands the seriousness of this life. She understands that there is an end to these days. And then the longer a woman lives, the more she understands, as she should understand, that, pe that people are dying. And the most important thing is that we share Christ with them. But more than that, I mean, that's, that's, like, that's what we want to do. But the only way we'll do that, and that's why I was going to say more than that, is our hearts have to be in tune with the Lord where we're walking with Him and we're asking Him to use us in this life. And we're not just being like these wanton women that First Timothy tells us. These older women, he describes them as wanton women, women who just are like the world, who are ungodly. We all know women who are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who behave like idiots, but yet they claim to know the Lord. Y'all, let's don't be like that. And, and you young girls who are in here, you know, you do not even understand. Some of you I don't know very well. I just, I see you. But I pray for you, and I mean that with all my heart. Those aren't words. I mean, I think about my granddaughters and my grandsons. I, they have no idea how much I pray for them. So y'all, these are serious times we're living in. It's always been serious. But I think the church, true believers, are understanding it even more. And we need to hold fast to the faithful word and be a part of rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Father, I thank you for these four weeks that you've given us to put our heads in 1 Corinthians 13. And I pray, too, that any woman who's listening to me or hears this later, Father, I pray that yes, each one of them would memorize your word and they wouldn't just know it, what it says but they would ask you to make it real in their lives.
Father, I thank you for Matthew Henry's words who he lived so long ago, but yet he used his time well to preach your word and to his words have brought so much comfort to my heart in these last five years, six years, since 2014 really. I thank you for the saints who walked before us, who stayed wholly devoted to you all throughout their lives, who didn't wander away, who stayed true, and who pinned things when they were going through their valleys and hard times. And we can look at them, and we can read their words, and we can be ministered to because we see real people who lived before us, who lived by your word. Father, I'm so grateful for your word. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through it. And thank you that though we see in a mirror dimly now, we will one day see face to face. And we will know you fully. And we can rejoice for those we love who already know you fully. What a day that will be. Father, help me, even in my sinfulness and my flaws and all the things I get wrong. Please help me to live whatever days you have ordained for me well. Protect me and protect each woman and young girl in this room. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this episode of Rare But Real, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when a new episode is posted. And share this podcast with friends. Follow Audrey on Instagram and Facebook at Mothering From The Heart. And listen to all her messages on the Search the Scriptures app.